why don't we stand up and I'll read the, our text to you tonight. Um, if the text is, is, is too long and, and uh, you're having trouble standing, don't, don't feel bad for sitting down. Okay. Wait until I read Psalm 119. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's read the text. Psalm 7. A meditation of Shigeon, of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instructions, or I'm sorry, instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as always, your word provides so much perspective and as much uncertainty and trouble as we face, uh, we're currently yet to face what David did. And so I just pray that as we continue to look through life uh, through the, the lens of David and others in the Psalms, Lord, that you would give us perspective, that you would re- redirect our fears, our concerns to you so that we would trust you. And, uh, and Lord, many things that we would just leave to you and cast them upon your shoulders, as Peter said, because you do care for us. And Lord, I, I pray for Calvary Chapel. I pray for your church in general. Lord, we need you to grant us wisdom for what's on the horizon. We don't, we don't want to just be wise, though, Lord. We want to be above reproach. We want to do the right thing. And so I pray that you would just give us moral courage, give us strength. And Lord, as there continues to be uh, divergent views on so much of this, I I just ask that you'd help us to be gracious with one another. And, um, so yeah, thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So a couple unknowns in this particular psalm. What is a Shigeon and how do you pronounce that puppy? Uh, who is Cush, the Benjamite? And, you know, when did all of this stuff happen to, to, um, to David? A little bit of, a few unknowns in there. Um, in this Shigeon, if I'm saying that correctly, 
um, David is pleading with God that all parties involved uh, would get what they deserve. Everybody involved, himself, his, his enemies, everybody. Everybody get what they deserve. You know, that the righteous, that they'd be vindicated and that they would be delivered, that the wicked would suffer God's wrath. David is never uh, shy about talking about God's justice for the unjust. But it's just that, Lord, all, that all would reap what they sow. That's what he's asking for. So let's, um, let's, let's look at it. And as I said last week, uh, Gabe wants the verses up there so he can pay attention. And so I'll keep them up there. A meditation, or if you have the, uh, that's the New King James, or Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So just to kind of introduce you to some of the struggles that, that translators get to deal with, uh, we have these words that are you know, very, very ancient and uh, not circulated through uh, Hebrew literature hardly at all. And so when they come across some of these words that don't have regular, regular use in a particular context, it's very difficult to uh, figure out what they are, what they mean. Uh, so this particular word, it's, it's uncertain. Uh, of course, scholars always have to take a shot in the dark at what it means, but it's all speculation. So as I said, the, the New King James has um, uh, translated as meditation. The, the uh, New Living Translation has it as a psalm. Okay? Well, we know that that's not what it is. Um, that's not the word for psalm. And then the, the King James, the ESV, the NASB, NIV, they've actually left the original Hebrew, the Shigeon. They just left it in there. So I'm not sure which is least or more helpful. Uh, because then when you go to your lexicon, depending on which one it is, some will just be very direct and honest with you, where the others you can tell, I'm not sure you really know what you're talking about, but you're, you're trying to provide a definition. It's only used one other time in uh, uh, the Old Testament. It's in the plural, though. It's in uh, Habakkuk 3.1. And uh, its use there is just as confusing. Okay? Uh, now, it is, I think, interesting to at least point out that both Psalm 7 and uh, Habakkuk 3 have to do with God's judgment and justice and then trusting God through all of it. And, and Habakkuk 3 is a very special um, uh, discussion about the faithfulness of God in spite of anything that unravels around us. You know, though the, the, the stalls are empty, the, though the vine, there's no fruit of the fig tree, has nothing on it. Uh, he says, yet I will praise the Lord. He goes on. It's a very sweet, uh, sweet song. It's actually a song of, of Habakkuk. Uh, but none of those contexts tell us what this word is. And many other psalms uh, and messages from the prophets uh, are nearly identical to Psalm 7. So why don't they use the word? So it tells us there may not be any connection with that at all. Uh, some have suggested that the word means to vent. Well, that could definitely be applied to a lot of David's psalms, couldn't it? But none of them use that. Others have said that it's, it's an irregular or a wild musical technique. Uh, one of the techniques they say, and I don't know how to say this word, uh, a dithyram. How many of you guys are familiar with a dithyram? I didn't think so. But the problem is, is, is that... Uh, 
musical technique is from ancient Greece and not ancient Hebrew. So we can't exactly apply that to the Hebrew text and say that the ancient Hebrews were utilizing a, a, um, a Greek thing when the Greeks and the Hebrews at this time, they had no connection to one another. That came much later in history. So I think that we should just describe anything that's indescribable as a shigeon. <laughs> so whatever it is, it's either something contained in the psalm or it describes something about the psalm. We just, we just don't know. And, and I think that's okay because it's actually the content of the psalm that's most important. And that's what we want to explore. So uh, in, in the introduction here also, there is an enemy of David named Cush, who it says he was a Benjamite, that is from the tribe of Benjamin. So uh, who he is and what he did to David cannot be found in any of the narratives of Scripture. Uh, there are typically two guesses about his identity. Okay, some have suggested that Cush is another name for Shimei. You guys remember Shimei? Uh, David is um, he's evacuating uh, Jerusalem of basically his cabinet, his special forces. And uh, on the way out, uh, there is a guy uh, pitching curses at them and rocks. And he's a Benjamite. And uh, he has a foul mouth. And, uh, you know, one of David's mighty men says, how about I go lop this dead dog's head off? And how dare him talk to the king this way? And David says, well, maybe the Lord sent him. Let's just leave him alone. Now, I think partially because of David's statement in regard to him that we're not talking about him. Because David says, just let it lie. And besides, what's he going to do? He's one man. What kind of a threat could he provide? You, a mighty man, going over there. And, I mean, what will that prove? And uh, so... And that whole incident is from 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 14. Uh, and, and I guess it, it is important to add to this that when David was on his deathbed speaking to Solomon, he said, make sure you whack Shimei, because he's nothing but trouble to the throne. So Solomon takes care of business with Shimei. Uh, so who is Cush? Others believe um, that, um, that it probably fits in, well, not in so much of his identity, but by this description of the psalm, that this actually took place when David was on the run from Saul. And I think that that fits it best, and I'll try to uh, deal with that as we go uh, through that. So um, Saul, Cush was a relative of Saul's, a Benjamite, may have been of some kind of co-conspirator uh, with Saul against David. I think that's probably going to be the best thing. Both are speculation, but I think the second one has the most merit. Um, okay, something I think also that's important to point out. When you, when you consider all of David's troubles in his life, I, I think that it's demonstrable that the tribe of Benjamin provided the most. Now, he had internal troubles with, within his own family, but when we look at the history of, of Benjamin in relationship to David, we, of course, we have Saul, uh, then we have some of Saul's children, uh, then we have Shimei, then we have Sheba, and now we have Cush, all Benjamites, all Benjamites. So as far as trouble within his own nation, the Benjamites, I think, uh, say 80% of the problems. And then, of course, the surrounding nations and some of those left in Canaan were outside. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin, of course, eventually became loyal to David and to Judah, but it was much later in David's life, and uh, most of it uh, was after his death. So pretty sad. All right, 
Also, whoever this Cush person was, it appears from the, the text itself that he's not alone. So it's not like Shimei, who's just this one guy who is cursing David, throwing rocks at him. Uh, this person seems to have uh, a group with him, and, and they're dangerous, whoever they are. So in the rest of verse 1 and into 2, into two David says, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. And deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces, while there is none to deliver. So David says, save me from all those. So specifically Cush, it it appears that he's probably the ringleader. Uh, He's the one heading all this up. But everyone, okay? Now that gives more weight to the idea that this is when David was on the run from Saul. Okay, Because when David established his throne, uh, the only um, interior threat with a lot of people that we know of is with Absalom. And when you go through the, the, that whole conspiracy from Absalom, there is no shortage of names of bad people and good people. And so why would Cush be left out? But when it comes to all of the conspiracies against David as a nobody in the kingdom when Saul reigned, there's just people everywhere, but not a lot of names. And so it seems more likely that, that Cush could be a part of that instead. And, of course, there's all these forces, um, forces against him. And these people are dangerous. Verse 3 says, O Lord my God, if, and listen to the language here, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemies without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor to the dust. What's being implied in these passages? Accusations. Yeah. David's being accused of some evil, some evil. Uh, And it appears that um, Cush is seeking David's life because of this evil that he believes that David has uh, committed. Now, if this is during the time of Saul, uh, what do you think uh, the evil is? What do you think the evil is? What's that? Yeah, Uh, insurrection, uh, mutiny. Uh, a conspiracy against the king, a coup, something, something. Okay? And I think that that adds more weight to this whole thing about David on the run. You know, Saul uh, had accused David of conspiring against him in 1 Samuel 22, verse 8, and then in 13. And we know that, that the conspiracy theory had spread well before that, because you remember when David was, was on the run, and it was, it was the major turning point when David was on the run permanently, is he fled and he went to Nod. And when he saw, or rather when Abimelech, the, the high priest, saw him, what was Abimelech's reaction? Uh, he was concerned. David was alone and he knew something was up. So that just tells you that, that you know, you can't hide rumors. You can't hide those kinds of ideas. It has spread across Israel and there's there's talk of conspiracy. There's talk of mutiny. That's 1 Samuel uh, 21. Yeah. Now, if you, know, you think of loyalties, and we have Saul, who is a Benjamite, on the throne over all of Israel, and we have a conspirator, what do you think would happen in the tribe of Benjamin at the knowledge of that? Right or wrong, the tribe of Benjamin is going to say, hey, you don't mess with the tribe of Benjamin. We have, you know, like the argument always is, we have uh, seven shares in the king. We have, you know, this is our gig. 
and so we're going to defend the throne regardless. And, uh, and so I think that in all of that, Cush uh, rises to the surface. He takes offense to all of this, and uh, he wants David's, David's hide. It's possible that he was uh, in charge of a, a small platoon or group uh, within. We know that uh, Saul divided his forces, trying to trap David in different places of the wilderness. And maybe um, Cush was one of the leaders of them. We know that David actually engaged uh, with his enemies at that time uh, and Saul, and there was questions back and forth. Hey, why do you seek my life? Why do you seek my life? Maybe that happened with Cush. And he said, you know, what's the deal? And Cush may have responded, hey, I'm after you because you're conspiring against the king. And David's like, look, dude, I'm one guy. (laughs) There's not much of me here. Okay, poor David. Yeah. But in the, the verses in front of us here, in spite of all of that, David is actually willing to receive his just reward if he's actually guilty of what he's being accused of. And he's, and he's, he's actually pleading with the Lord and say, Lord, you make this happen. If, if I have committed some evil, then turn me over. Turn me over. If I'm guilty, let the enemy have his desire upon me. And so David is not going to run from the consequences of, of his actions, if indeed they are his actions. In the face, whatever is just, whatever is right, even if it hurts. I think that's a great show of character. And it's, it's something that's, of course, very untypical. People usually run away uh, from what they deserve. But David says, I'm here to own it. I'll take it, whatever it is. But when we read the, the prophet's account of David's life uh, as he was you know, brought up, in his father's house, to being anointed, to being with King Saul, serving him, fighting his battles, and all of that stuff. Uh, Do we see a David who is guilty of evil, or do we see a David who is above reproach? Yeah, like exceptionally above reproach. Uh, And it's exceptional because of all that happened to him. David was the most loyal subject that Saul had. He fought ridiculous battles for Saul. He didn't throw spears back at Saul, and he even protected Saul's life, sparing him from his mighty men uh, when uh, Saul was vulnerable. Okay? So David was blameless. Okay? He walked before the king with wisdom. And I think part of the problem is, is that as he walked in wisdom, the Lord blessed him. And so when Saul saw David being blessed, he became jealous, he became insecure, and insecure people cannot reason with reality very well. And so all of this stuff, he began to interpret things differently. And then he started to spin a story to his men, to Israel. And the only person that wasn't going for it was Jonathan, was Jonathan, the friend of of David. So it's nothing like a false narrative, making David the enemy of the state and then threatening anyone who aided or abetted him uh, with the death. Yeah. So David's the whipping boy. Now, I, I think that I mean, you guys are, in Western culture, very familiar with a false narrative, or hundreds of them. But I think that as we see the world doing that, we should definitely be critical of it. Uh, but I think that we need to be very careful with it all as well, because a false narrative is a false witness. A false narrative is a false witness, and it can get people hurt. And so when it comes to false narratives, to false um, witness, I love what the law prescribes or a false witness. A false witness was to be punished for the offense they accused someone of. That's the law. If a false witness accused someone of murder, 
for which the penalty was death, Moses prescribed that that false witness be executed. They gave witness against someone's life, and so if it could be established that they lied in their testimony, uh, they were to receive the punishment of the crime they accused the innocent person of. And when laws like this are upheld, it purges the dock of false witnesses. Do you guys know what the dock is? It's a British term for the witness stand. How many of you guys have read God in the Dock from C.S. Lewis? Did I loan that to you? Oh, you have it, yeah. So it's called God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis, and, and uh, it's really well done. Anything from Lewis is pretty well done, but uh, it, what it is, is it's C.S. Lewis responding to like um, letters to the editor or some political thing uh, that is going on or uh, something Freud, you know, the... the um, the, the, the psychotherapist and all that. He was always just, it was just C.S. Lewis responding to random things. And some of it's very, very good. But anyway, that's what the doc is. But could you imagine if we actually upheld a law similar to that in America? We could purge a lot of the nonsense. So. But anyway, uh, David is saying that if, if the accusations are true, he's saying, let me be turned over to the enemy. Uh, but in this instance, David was blameless. So he calls for something else. He says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. Now, another reason I think that this is, excuse me, when David was on the run is because he had no power. And it's actually, I think, a good position for Christians to be in because when we have no power to exert ourselves, what do we have to do? We have to look up. We have to trust in the Lord. And so I think that's, that's good. That's good for us. And I think that David is kind of expressing that. I, I can't tell my army to go take care of this business for me. I can't, whatever. I have to totally trust in the Lord in this regard. So he calls for God's righteous indignation, which he says that God has commanded or ordained for the wicked. And he would like it to come sooner than later. How many of you guys ever feel that way? He knows that God hates a false witness. Solomon wrote, uh, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, I got to watch that one, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives, devises rather wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Proverbs 6, 17 through 19. I like it. False witness. We're no stranger to a false narrative. I think actually our culture thrives on the drama that is spun through these stories that incriminate people's opponents, destroy their lives. But it's all false witness. The Lord knows it. He says, so the congregation of the people shall surround you. He's talking about in the context of judgment and and even worship. He says, for their sake, therefore, return on high. The idea there is to return to a place of judgment to where you can rule over the situation. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. David, he's convinced of his own innocence, isn't he? Yeah, he's convinced. But now he wants God to examine him to prove his innocence. You, God, you judge me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Yeah. 
And, and I say that David, he's sure of his innocence in this matter because he's not innocent in every matter. But the difference is, is when David was confronted with his sin, he was quick to confess, he was quick to repent. But when David knew that he was right, he would say things like, judge me according to my righteousness. Let's get this on right now. He says, when it, was, when it concerned Saul as God's anointed, he says, I was above reproach. He says, so let's start the judgment right now. I'm ready to face whatever is there. He calls on God to, as his witness to vindicate him. He says, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. The one who judges thoughts, intents, and motives. Everyone is exposed before him. And he says, God will establish the upright. He's confident of that. And he will condemn the wicked. Now, listen carefully to what David is saying. We mentioned God's nature last week, and it's because of God's nature that ensures a certain outcome, always. If God is one thing in his nature, that will ultimately come about. Okay? He says this is, this is all a guarantee, and it is because of God's nature, the righteous judge. He says God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day if he does not turn back. Now, if you have a new King James, if he is speaking of God, it's capitalized. If it's not speaking about God, it's lowercase. Of course, unless it's the first word uh, in a sentence. So notice here, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he, lowercase, does not turn back, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So he's saying, look, God is just in his nature. He said it in the last verse. Now he's saying God is a just judge, and therefore, because of evil, his indignation burns perpetually, day in and day out. Now, the New King James says that he is angry with the wicked every day, while other translations say that he feels indignation every day. Okay, now both types of translations, the, the literal translations, they have to clarify uh, who it is that the, is the object of God's wrath, either in verse 11 or in verse 12. The translator had to pick one or the other. The New King James provides clarity as to the object of God's wrath in verse 11, which is the wicked. He is angry with the wicked every day. The other ones say he feels indignation every day. So then the next verse, the others clarify the object of God's wrath, which is the unrepentant, those that do not turn back from their evil ways. They are wicked. So they're all correct. The translator just has to decide where he's going to clarify the text. So God is angry with wicked, unrepentant people every day, all the time. His justice holds his indignation in full throttle 24-7. It cannot be any other way because of God's nature, you understand? It's at full throttle. Wherever there is evil, God's wrath is stirred. Uh, John 3.36 says that you know, those who do not believe in the Son, they do not have life, but the wrath of God abides. It remains on that person. It remains. So the question is, how do you evade the wrath of God? How do you escape? If God is just by nature, if his indignation against evil 
Is it full throttle 24-7? How is it that a sinner, an evil person, can evade and escape his righteous wrath? Because he can't change. So what must happen? We have to change. We have to change. He says, if he does not turn back, that is, if he does not repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will also perish, speaking to his disciples. Repentance. They must repent. They must trust in Christ if they're to avoid God's wrath. If they do that, they, they're the one that moves. God's wrath continues. His justice continues. But they move through repentance and faith out of God's wrath and then into his grace and mercy, which is extended to all through Christ because he suffered the wrath of God in our place. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. And those who refuse to repent, or as verse 12 has it, if the wicked do not turn back, he's saying they will just continue headlong into a righteous God where justice will be served. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't miss the colorful language <laughs> that with God, he's, you know, he's busy sharpening his sword. That's all preparatory. He's getting ready for judgment. He's, he's in the process of bending his bow. He's making instruments of death and arrows that are set ablaze. He makes, you know, the idea, the picture that he's producing here is that the day of judgment is a day of war. It's a, it's a cosmic battle between good and evil, but God is the only one ready for the battle. He will be victorious over evil. He will banish it from his creation. Verse 14 through 16, he says, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. That is, it's like saying he gives birth to it. Yes, he, he conceives trouble and he brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. That's the kind of justice we love to see. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. You know, the reason we love that kind of justice is because we get to see it. We don't have to wait or hope for God to take care of it in eternity. We get to watch people endure uh, what they made other people endure. So anyway, uh, you know, David had asked earlier that he be judged according to his own righteousness and by the moral integrity of his own heart. Uh, in other words, he wanted what he had coming to him, and he believed that uh, fair is fair, and they should have it as well. That's what he's saying here. Let's just all be fair. I'll get what I get coming to me, and you get what you get coming to you. And, uh, and I remember the story. Uh, I remember the whole thing. I was innocent, and you were evil. So good luck in this whole judgment thing. Now, what if we don't get to see people's iniquity fall back on them? What if we don't get to see them fall into the pit that they dug for others? Then what do we do? Wow, that is so boring, Carol. <laughs> I want to see it now. I want to even maybe produce a context which could kind of hasten it. But I think David constantly in the Psalms, he, he, he confidently believed that they, they would, maybe, maybe not today, maybe not even before they destroyed his life or livelihood, maybe not when he could witness it, but David knew that payday was on the horizon, and he knew God and his character well enough that when God finally deals with the wicked, it's going to be right, it's going to be good, it's going to be the way that it ought to be. God will take care of it. He has declared that uh, vengeance belongs to him. Uh, would you check on that for me? Thanks, Isaac. 
God says, vengeance is mine. I will take care of it. I will repay. I want more of that trust in my own heart. Now, and, and you know, I can handle a lot of injustice myself. I can endure a lot, but I don't like to watch loved ones endure it. And I want to intervene, and, and, uh, but I need to trust God even when people I love are, are suffering, knowing that he'll take care of business. People are not going to get away with their evil. He says, you know, in the spite of all the context, in spite of all that's happening, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. So David, through the Holy Spirit, he's calling upon us to trust him, to praise him for his righteousness. He's going to ensure that everything is going to be good. All right, so I, in, in the meantime, because, you know, it's, it's good to, pre- to prepare for injustice, because when you're surprised by injustice, what do you do? You react. That's right. It's like when the doctor taps on your knee. Yeah. Instead of being prepared and able to act appropriately when it comes at you, okay, that is so much, so much better. So much better. So if you have someone in your life who insists on being your enemy, who lies about you, who has it out for you, I want you to start, because you all have one. Even those of you that are angels. <laughs> People will hate you for how good you are. Isn't that the case with David? He was so good that it just it irritated Saul to no end. With those people, we need to be above reproach. Perhaps it's a co-worker, a family member. I would say it's probably a family member. Even a sibling, a business competitor, uh, a neighbor. And, and I think that something that we need to constantly be mindful of is that if we have transgressed God's word, if, if we have transgressed God's word in our interactions with those persons, we should confess it as fast as possible. We should repent, and if necessary, we should face all of the consequences like a mature Christian. Okay? And for our vindication, we should first and foremost look to God. And, and the more in the habit we are of looking to God through these matters, the less we'll react and the more we'll just act in a, in a godly fashion when it happens. So... Now, I, I will say this because, you know, when you start addressing or thinking about scenarios, people go, well, can't I do anything? Now, I'm not talking about matters of what is true self-defense. Um, I don't think that uh, behaving upright in these contexts necessarily precludes uh, many forms of action, even legal action. But it always requires that we as Christians through all of that remain uh, above reproach, that we're guiltless. And, and if you've dealt with some lawyers... They don't want you to be guiltless. But you have to draw the line and say, I belong to Christ. If I'm going to go this route, we're going to do this right. I'm not going to um, defame them. Okay, we're going to state the facts, and we're going to go with that. Because giving false witness against someone who seeks our demise, I mean, where in the Bible does it say, don't bear false witness except? It doesn't say that. Okay? We need to be just. We need to leave the results up to God. Uh, Let me just finish with this from Paul. Paul had a good way of saying some things. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. No one. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I love that. Seeking opportunities to bless your enemy. And then he closes with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the last command here, I think it is the best way to sum all of these up uh, from the Holy Spirit. It stands out the most to me in the context, because as soon as, we, as soon as we've returned evil for evil, we've cooperated with evil. We've cooperated. We have contradicted what is good in the sight of all. We've not lived peaceably with all men. Now, I think that there's a time, he says, as much as possible, live peaceably. Okay. Uh, Saturday night, I am, or Monday, Sunday morning, I almost had a situation where I could no longer live peaceably with someone, as much as is possible. Okay. Uh, if you weren't there, I can explain to you. If you weren't there Sunday for me, to hear the story, I'll explain it to you afterwards. Uh, we have not taken, uh, I'm sorry, we have taken vengeance into our own hands, and then we have failed to heap coals of fire on the head of the one who hates us. And so then we have been overcome by evil. And as a result, evil remains and it is prevailing. It's prevailing. So Christ has commanded us to be victorious over evil, not simply by avoiding evil. Remember, if your enemy is hungry, you could remain passive and say, hey, comes around, goes around. I'm just going to be passive. But no, we have been commanded to seek opportunity. If we see them in need, we should go and try to help them. We can't avoid evil. We have to do good. And one evil act does not cancel out another. It just perpetuates evil. But whenever you know, good is applied to evil, it has the power to at least delay further evil, or it can reverse it. It can reverse it in our neighborhoods, our families, our businesses, and I believe just about every other context of life. Amen? I have, you guys, I'm sure everybody in here has been wronged. And most of the wrongs committed against my family was when he first moved here. It's a long story. But I just remember so many things happening to us as a welcome to, to Centralia. And we had opportunity, multiple opportunities to sue and to be like totally vindictive and upset. And, and I, I can't say that I wasn't upset. I, I wanted vengeance badly. But I just remember the Lord saying, hey, you know, new guy to town, just relax. Okay, I called you here. I'll take care of you. You're going to be wronged. Just roll with it. I'll take care of all of it. And, uh, and, I, and I look back now, and I, I think about all of the damage I could have caused to the reputation of Christ and Calvary Chapel. And the Lord spared us from all of those things. And, uh, in fact, some friends of ours that just moved to another community are enduring some of the same things that we did. And they have a right to sue. So I'm very curious to how all this is going to turn out. So anyway, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Father, it's a guarantee that in this world, evil is going to come our way. And Lord, we want our hands to be clean. We want to be above reproach. And, and we don't just want to be passive in regard to it. You have called us to overcome evil with good. So I pray that you'd help us to be creative. Pray that you'd help us to be courageous. And, uh, and that, Lord, we would be actively affecting uh, those around us, in our families, our neighborhoods, our work environment. And Lord, I expect much, much more evil to come our way in the next few years as your people. And so I pray that we would be thinking about this now and how we ought to handle this and how we ought to look to you first and seek your face and know what we ought to do in advance. So Lord, grant us wisdom, understanding in your word. Yeah, Lord, we want to honor you 
in all of our circumstances. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.